Hi, and welcome to the Insiders by Durham Lane, where we get perspectives from industry thought leaders about strategies that are unifying marketing and sales cycles to help accelerate growth inside your world. And welcome to the Insiders Sales and Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Hazeldean. I'm a sales transformation strategist and consultant, and I help my clients get more sales more often with more margin. I'm also a speaker on the subject of sales and the author of a number of books. And my co-host is none other than Richard Lane, co-founder of Durham Lane, who are an inside sales partner that helps businesses grow their revenue through an integrated sales and marketing methodology. And Richard, you have the great privilege of introducing our guest for this episode. So over to you, sir. I do. Thank you, Simon. And hi, everyone. Really, really thrilled to be able to introduce James Webb to our podcast. James is VP of Central Europe and Marketing at Fellows Brands. And James, really pleased to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining. And I'm uh, totally looking forward to the conversation we're about to uh, engage in. Wonderful. Fantastic. Thank you, Richard. So wonderful to have you with us, James. Uh, Something we always ask our guests is to let us know a little bit about your background, how you came to be in the role you're in currently, just helps our listeners to to get to know you a little bit. So uh, yeah, how how did you come to be where you are now, please? Um, Yeah, absolutely happy to do that. And thank you very much for having me on today. Um, I've been with Fellows 25 years, so um, I'm, uh, in terms of where I've got to, I've been um, in a number of different roles, started in marketing, moved into account management in our retail business, then transferred into um, some management of our UK business, moved into a European role. Um, and then in terms of my role today, yeah, it's um, VP of Central Europe and um, European marketing, and that's responsibility for both our countries and our um, product teams as well. So I kind of wear two hats in terms of sales and marketing of our product categories um, out to consumers in the trade. Fantastic. That's obviously going to be uh, keeping you busy in a working week wearing uh, wearing two two hats. So probably not wondering how to fill your Friday afternoons by the sounds of things at the no. end of a busy week. So um, and I guess first question, but you know, if we look at fellows, the business has been around a long time and it was founded in 1917 when Harry Fellows introduced his original banker's box in the Chicago area to, to, to the banking industry, which yep. addressed a problem of disorganized paper records. Remember paper, folks? <laughs> we still have a lot of it, don't we? We're supposed to go on paperless, but we still appear to have a lot of it. Um, but what what changes have you seen in the kind of the problems, the demands, and the expectations from customers in the sort of industry sectors that you're working in? I think we've we obviously, as you say, paper. Um, there is a, a certain myth of the, paper, of the paperless office um, but the fundamental need for people is still the same people want um, improved organization they want to work more efficiently they want to work in a state of flow so um, really the products that we create are trying to help people do that um, in the primary workspace so the, the basic need is the same um, people value innovation if you can really understand what the consumer frustrations are so we try yeah. and transfer that into our you know from our storage boxes in terms of being quick set up through to our shredders in terms of making sure they don't jam through to our other products as well so 
basically every, a lot's changed and some things have remained the same. Yeah, and luckily we've got customers who are still frustrated, right? So, so yep. causing issues and problems. And, you know, I mean, on the podcast, we'll often discuss the concept of finding out what those customer frustrations, those customer challenges are, you know, before we do some sort of product pitching kind of yes. work or putting those, putting those things in place. And still still rather like paper in the office, an awfully prevalent problem for, for salespeople. I mean, Richard, in your experience with, um, you know, the folks you work with at Durham Lane, do you still see some clients who who have the, the sales teams have this premature pitching problem we might, we might refer to it as? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I, I think just reflecting back to what James was, you know, articulated then is I, I love the fact that you're solutioning with all of the products that you create there, you know, in terms of we're creating um, shredders that don't jam and we're, you know, it's it's evolution, but it's still got the solution at heart. Part of, I think, the biggest challenge in in sales and the perception of sales full stop has been this sort of pitch mentality. Um you know, just pitch a product, no idea whether there's a problem to solve or not. Um, and, uh, you know, that leads only to someone feeling dissatisfied with the communication they've just had with that salesperson, I think, Simon. So yeah. um, our, our rule is, you know, discover and, and seek, you know, I guess Stephen Covey inspired, but our third mantra is be interested to be interesting. You know, the reality is the more interested you are in someone else, the more interesting you become to them. So that's yeah. how we try and um, try and position it. And is James, it from a, from your point of view at Fellows, in terms of your, you know, you're pulling together your your marketing activity, and therefore that, you know, that's going to influence the sales activity that takes place. What do you do as an organisation to sort of stay on top of current frustrations or problems or challenges? How do you do that kind of intelligence of your your end users and and indeed channel partners and distributors? It's, it's, uh, there's uh, various different ways on a on a kind of a bigger broader scale we're looking at the trends in the workplace so whether that's hybrid working whether that's the the, dem- the demographic changes you see in um, new generations coming into the workplace and what they demand um so you the ways of working flexible working the environments people work in and then from a product um perspective we we do a lot of end user research around our specific product categories what what frustrates them what people value um so it's on a number of different angles and as we see trends changing and shifting things like the move from the paperless office you see the rise of health and well-being solutions and we certainly see that rise in our business and how we then adapt our approach to market moving from more of a transactional um, approach selling online um, in one part of our business to much more of a consultative led approach in the other side of our business well actually that you you, you mentioned the, that sort of transactional yep. aspect and um, I know we were we were having a, a conversation before we came on air, and uh, we we were talking about this change that had taken place. Where I think it was 2014, I I was at an event, and Neil Rackham, the author of the very very famous book Spin Selling, predicted that business to business buying will become increasingly polarized. So the the middle ground where buyers were prepared to pay a little bit more for the benefit of getting a bit of advice would diminish, and buyers would either buy transactionally or or consultatively so there would be these sort of two camps i suppose is is that something you're experiencing at fellows that that sort of polarization 
Yes, um, it, it depends on the depends on the the products. It depends on um, the channels that you're serving. It depends on the the end user needs. So, for example, we might speak to a, a financial institution about their shredding needs, but you know your your small office consumer will be happily quite purchase the product online. So, there's a there's a few very there's there are some broad themes. Yes, it's beginning more transactional, but there's always some exceptions and areas where you would add value in in our more core business. Um, and then absolutely people, if you take the health and wellbeing part of our business, which is much more consultative, people are willing to pay for the value of, of that guidance and advice. So in our posture right business, um, our salespeople are trained to do workstation risk assessments because that's what their clients are demanding as a service that's provided. So, um, and they're willing to pay for that service because it, it takes away um, something that they would have to do themselves. Yeah, and that's that's an interesting. It's it's an interesting like comment to you know your financial institution. If you don't get that shredding right, yeah. yep. you've got a serious problem, haven't you? In terms of breach of confidence, etc. So, the the risk factor for those customers is far higher. So therefore, they're going to probably want a more intimate relationship with your organisation in terms of understanding the needs and making sure they're satisfied. Uh, properly particularly where there's legislation involved so gdpr was a great example where people were had they had a problem to solve and they were you know they were they really needed that guidance yeah that's not something you want to be getting wrong with the uh, potential no, potential exactly. repercussions yeah. and, and, and richard uh, that polarization your your comments from your perspective yeah it's i mean i, I was gonna so maybe reflect back to something james said earlier about the the difference the different approach needed depending on the size or type of client. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time on behalf of our enterprise customers going into C-suite um, organizations, individuals and organizations trying to, uh, you know, raise awareness and and do discovery and, and create meaningful opportunity. But, you know, our methodology selling at a high level is solution-based, consultative in nature and, and stems from question-based selling, I guess. So, all approaches we make, I guess, whether it's quite a transactional purchase or not, we tend to come at it from a uh, solution basis. And um, I, I, has that been an evolution for you, James? Do you think, in terms of your organisationals, your organisation, and, and the way that you sell to, you know, the polarisation of, of the transactional, maybe even no friction touch point from a sales individual at all through to the consultative has that been have you seen that sort of shift yeah ab- absolutely i think um you know previously it has, a lot of it's been about selling in as much as you can to the trade and now it's it's much more orientated about selling selling out and pulling pulling through um and adding as much um getting as much connection with the consumer as you can and i guess thankfully in, in modern marketing you're able to do that um but yeah being able to provide either good content because even the transactional side needs a good level of content and support for people to be able to self-serve through to yeah um, an evolution of where people actually want um, want a service and they might want that service they might not need it face to face they might want it provided online in an environment like this for example where you can have a, a good meaningful discussion about you know, air quality in a building for example yeah and i guess it's it's, it's that balance and, and i suppose cost of sale isn't it around making something frictionless but also being supportive and having the resource available to be consultative and answer the questions, um, yet making it still a profitable business to to run and to build. Yes, yeah, I would agree. Yep. And have you found have you found your your sales people have adapted to the move from say 
what it might have been traditionally just face-to-face sales and into what we might call, like you mentioned, hybrid working. So, mm-hmm. you know, yep. uh, Richard and I will hear the phrase hybrid selling quite often now from where salespeople are having to be quite agile and move between different communication mediums with, with customers. So how, how do you think your folks have adapted to, to that kind of change? I think um, I think you have to you have to play to people's strengths. So there's still an element of that traditional, um, but then there's equally a, you know an evolution in dealing with e-commerce accounts from a selling perspective requires a, a very different skill a skill and approach to dealing with um, you know two thousand one of our customers has two thousand salespeople and what you need to do to motivate them and engage them is very very different. But generally, I think um, you have to you have to identify you know the strengths that people have and make sure you put the right people in the right place. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know some of the some of the role profiling sometimes right really important to make sure you've got people with the psychological makeup that suits the sort of sales activity that you want. I mean, this goes right back to a sort of more traditional hunter farmer concept, isn't it, which has been around for for kind of ever ever and a day. Yeah, and I think we also. I mean, we generally um, I think the salesperson's had to evolve to be a, a bit of a sales and marketing hybrid as well. Um, so not just. Um, you know, that selling in, they've got to be able to liaise and, and work with a, a customer and talk their language. And sometimes that is how can they market our products through that customer, um, which is very different now. So giving them a base level of understanding um, whilst not asking them to be experts is is important as well. You know, we come across a, a lot of our customers or the, the sales professionals within within our customer base who typically we're, we're creating opportunity for really struggle with that omni-channel approach you know that, that you you have to you have to be omnichannel now. You know, and and we find that it might be phone call, it might be email, it will be LinkedIn, it might be WhatsApp, um, it could be Instagram retargeting, whatever it might be. But actually, you you have to you have to be comfortable or at least willing to give any type of communication a try. And and basically, you've got to live you've got to live where your customers live, haven't you? Absolutely. And you you mentioned that that um, sales and marketing hybrid, and I, part of another part of what we were talking about before we came on air was that you know Richard and I will often work with organisations and speak to people who experience the the quite all too common, sadly, divide between sales and marketing and the friction that sometimes exists. And and you were saying you don't really experience that, at fellows, and because that's such a common challenge we'd we'd love to get your insight into why you think you you know you you don't have that as an issue you've got that um that classic challenge solved by the sounds of things uh, whether i've got it solved completely i don't know <laughs> i don't know the, the, sec- the secret sauce yes Here we go. um i think i was i was reflecting on this and i think i think honestly it's, it stems back to the, the fact we're a 105 year old company we've we've tended to focus on the customer and the consumer all the way through that and we have a have a clear value proposition um it doesn't deviate too much but the company continues to evolve but i think making sure you're clear on the direction the company's going in that's easy for people to understand creates um i guess a joint sense of purpose and that helps keep people aligned um and then from you know working back from that is making sure you've got a, a clear plan we have a clear plan over the next three years and that again makes sure people are focused on the right priorities, um, the right sales and marketing activity, and then also having people with joint responsibilities is a big benefit. So I have joint responsibility. Our country managers have joint sales and marketing responsibility. So you're not 
you're asking people to make decisions, not choices. Um, and that helps them keep their, their teams aligned as well. So I can't say we don't have healthy debates. We do, absolutely, um, because, you know, investments are made um, and, you know, it's right that we challenge each other on where those investments are made and how they're made. Um, but it's uh, generally, it, it, seems to, it seems to work okay. I mean, healthy debate is part of a great team. I mean, if you, you know, all, all teams have tension and in great teams or great organisations, that tension is used positively rather than in a destructive way. And like you say, if it's a, if it's a tension, it's a debate about how do we best achieve our common purpose. I say that's a healthy thing. It's when we get a lot of infighting, I think, that starts to cause, <clears throat> cause the issues. I mean, if, if everybody's agreeing, that's probably also quite a dangerous place to be sometimes it's, so it's also measurement though isn't it simon um yeah you know actually what we see a lot is that the marketing organization is measured on the creation of mql for example the sales organization is measured on on wins and order value um but there's nothing that's connected though connecting those two together and and yeah that's where we come in but i think one thing that james has said there is that the country managers have dual responsibility you know, you you look after both so actually fellows has put it under one roof which which has to surely help because at the end of the day it's in your and the country manager's interest for the two elements of sales and marketing to to connect and be successful together and i think um my other comment from very early in your response james with my ears my ears shot up um fellows has been around since 1917 folks and if you want to know why <laughs> I would say it's focus on your customer and your consumer. It's clearly that's part of the whole ethos of the organization. And that's so sadly lacking. You know, the LinkedIn state of sales survey from late last year was showing us something globally. 60% of salespeople and think they're customer first and only 20% of the customers think that. So, you know, we're fooling ourselves sometimes. It has to be, I think it has to be a philosophy and a cultural thing, not just a phrase on a on an office wall, you know, where you I think a professor at London Business School. Are your values lived or laminated? I think was his <laughs> was it was his was his tongue in tongue in cheek comment. But that's that that sounds like that's a sort of a cultural thing that permeates fellows. Yeah, we have a we have a what we call a three sixty value proposition, and and that's very clear, and that's been the same for at least twenty years, and there would have been a version of it before then. So things um, things we do well, we try and keep keep the same um and there's obviously areas you can do better but generally what we do is not so complicated you know we're trying to sell great products to a, to end consumers um and we don't need to overcomplicate it so not overcomplicating is important and, and linking your revenue to your expenditure into from a marketing perspective is is something we try and make sure that we do so we've got a clear handle on on what we're doing and if it makes sense and in terms of customer focus, Richard, what do you think? What do you see out there in terms of what's getting in the way of that genuinely being the case for some organisations? Well, I, th I think the way that people in customer-facing roles are probably targeted and measured is is still mm. a challenge, Simon. So, um, you know, if you're targeting someone on making a number no matter what, then you're probably not going to be driving the right behaviours. But if you're focusing yeah. someone on behaviours first um it, you're more likely to be customer centric and yeah it's easy to say isn't it customer centric approach but actually i think you know being able to master that and have 
put your feet in the shoes of the customer demands a lot of emotional intelligence and i just wonder how much i wonder how much training in the commercial world goes into helping people to be um to be listeners first and talkers second i'm you know i still think i still think the world of sales training has an awful long way to go in that respect um so yeah that's just sort of i think where we're at yeah i just um i think i'd probably just i'd have to have a deep sigh sometimes when if i'm working with folks and i'd say take me through your sales presentation or your value proposition and out comes six or seven slides all about themselves first and how many offices they've got around the world and all of that sort of stuff, and don't don't start with the customer. So it just, uh, you know, that that just seems to be missing sometimes. So you know, to have, I guess, to have that as an ethos at fellows is, you know, really probably you know powerful, powerful testament to the organisation's longevity, James. It is, and we we try and encourage you know our, our sales and marketing teams to spend as much time with the customer or with the end user as we can. We want that interaction, so we try not to get bogged down in you know in systems administration. It is it is about the mm. customer, um, you know whether that's um, doing a, an audit of their their premises to understand their air quality and be able to talk to them about that. It, you know, it's not about um, how many air purifiers can I flog you. It's you know what need have you got where you know, where have you got a problem with air quality? Um, so it's very much that approach. And then if you do the right, if you do those things right, then the the, the revenue kind of tends to follow as opposed to putting the revenue first. Yeah, absolutely. And on that sort of subject, we also discussed in our, our pre-interview conversation around um, your, your focus on outcome-focused sales and marketing. So what do you do to make that happen in the organization? That's really um, the, the big part of, uh, yeah, we've got now got a three-year plan and we're very clear as an organization on, on where we would like to be and, and what that means um, in terms of the product solutions we'll provide. And so I think working back from, from the end goal, but also thinking about the solutions we want to provide um, is key and, and working it backwards in terms of, is it is it achievable? So if you want the outcome to be that you want to be the market leader in air treatment, you're going to have to have certain pillars and proof points to make sure that's the case, whether that's around um, product performance, understanding the category, product testing. So it's making sure you've got the pillars in place to support what you're trying to trying to achieve. So we wouldn't tend to set an outcome without really understanding, okay, have we got all the capabilities to to achieve that? Because it can be dangerous to set a, an aspiration and a target if you, you know, and I think sometimes companies can be guilty of that. You don't necessarily then understand truly what you, what's required from a capability perspective. And Richard, your reflections on that kind of outcome focus and 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 its importance, or why it's missing or in place sometimes. So, just a, a small example from from our business, but we don't pay we don't pay a standard commission to our SDRs which is very unusual for our marketplace. Um, why don't we do that? Well, because if we did it, we believe it just sets totally the wrong, um, the wrong incentive. So, you know, actually we're about creating meaningful quality opportunities for our customers. As soon as you put a pound note on the creating of a meeting, um, you're driving a totally different behavior potentially. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, we talk about inputs, outputs, outcomes, and insights. So, how do we make sure we're delivering the right level of, of outcome? We're garnering insight for the customer and actually everybody's incentivized to 
drive forward and create a successful long-term partnership. And and I think when you get people thinking in that way, um, the day job happens, right? Because yeah, the, you, know, you, you so you've super super uh, superseded that sort of first level goal, and you're going towards the vision. And just something James was saying there, maybe if I could just pick up on, you know, there's been a lot of I think starting with Jim Collins, wasn't it? In Good to Great, you know, the BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goal. Sounds like fellows actually are saying, well, no, let's be, you know, we have a, a saying internally, um, ambitious yet realistic. And it sounds like that's your approach as well. It's sort of, let's not shoot so far away and hope that we get somewhere near it, but let's actually be considered and create goals that are meaningful and are a stretch, but we know we're going to deliver with the right infrastructure. Would that be fair to say, James, is that the sort of mindset? It it is. It's it's interesting you you talk about BHAGs because sometimes sometimes we will use them, but only right. we'll use them in smaller areas because then you can take it's bought. Then you can take a risk or you can take a chance. Yeah. Um, but it's not distracting from your overall direction. Right. So okay. um, yeah. yeah, there's. I think it's about finding the right balance. You you yeah where you where you want to be clear, set a clear outcome. But if you want to try some things, I think that's also an important mindset to have as well. Yeah. Um, oh, that's interesting. So you've sort of got the. That I was going to say the juggernaut, maybe that's not right, but you've got the core business and the brand is yeah. rolling and driving forward and you know where you're going with that. You've got a long history and then you're experimenting in other places with some, you know, some probably pretty wild goals in terms of let's shoot for this. And, you know, but that's not at the expense of, of the core. Yeah, making sure you try things. I mean, that's one of the benefits of being privately owned. You, you don't have to keep um I guess you, your shareholders are relatively limited in their yes. size. Yeah. There's only a few of them. Um and um, just being able to have the freedom and, and people to have the freedom to try things and do things differently or do things quickly um, is, a, is a real benefit as well. So I think it's, yeah, I think it, you've got to get that balance right. But ultimately, having that clear focus on the outcome um, is really important. Yeah, excellent. Fantastic. I mean, I, I, the comment as well that resonated for me was, you know, I'm, I'm, to, to paraphrase you, James, don't worry about how many units the customer might buy. Find out what the customer's yeah. problems and challenges are, and then the, the units take care of themselves. Yeah. And I think that takes a little bit of a leap of confidence for some people to realise that that's the, you know, if you focus on the right thing, you get the right results. Yeah. And 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 I think the customers can, they can tell the difference, can't they? You yes. Know, they know that, you know, one of your folks has got their best interests at heart. They're going to trust them, which lowers a lot of the risk the purchasing risk for the for the customer um and just interested to ask you that my experience is that the use of sort of case studies and customer success stories and testimonials is still often quite underutilized by sales or marketing teams um how do you approach that sort of area of the the robert cialdini-esque sort of social proof part of you know using other customers to tell potential customers about what you do I think on in our more transactional categories, it's it's a lot more straightforward. There's a you know, take shredding as an example. The the need is quite clear and the the solution is quite clear. So it's it's then about selling the innovation and the fellow's brand in in our air treatment business, which has changed dramatically over the last two or three years because of the pandemic. Um, creating, talking, being subject experts and be able to give people the confidence they're buying the right solution because. Ultimately, whilst COVID has um, created awareness around indoor air quality, there's still it's still an invisible um, issue to an extent. So, being able to give them confidence and case studies around um, what happens when you put the product into a room and the results has been key. So, case studies either before in terms of much more um, 
technical so you might have a backed by a scientist because the the proof point is there through to a study that we've done with the Chicago Cubs or Doncaster Rovers to be able to show actually this is the types of environments you would put the product um, and the benefits it can have um, and then having those people from, from those organizations talk about the benefits of that product I think also helps people relate so it's been really really important for us in in that category um, where it's a little bit more complicated um, and people are prepared to take a lot more time to research as well so on our website, we've got a, a massive range of, um, of case studies, whether that's through dental, whether that's through um, the environments I've already talked about, whether that's offices. So, um, so it's been a really, really interesting part to explore, actually. And from Chicago Cubs to Doncaster Rovers, was that, James? That There's is a solution uh, for everybody. From one side of the sporting world to the other, geographically, that was a one. That's a wonderful diversity of customers. What we have, what we have learned is sadly it can't always uh, translate into performance on the pitch. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> no matter how, no, no matter no. how pure the air is. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a contributory factor, but uh, but it's not the it's not the only thing to the to the performance of the people pitch. One wonderful. Well, I think on on that uh, on that sporting note, James, thank you so much for sharing uh, your your wisdom with us really really appreciate it uh, richard any any closing comments or thoughts from you sir no i think that was uh, just to reiterate your thanks really simon so james thank you um pleasure really really fascinating i think we've you know we've covered a number of a number of subjects and you know the ultimate one for me comes down to our job is to listen and then tell relatable stories of how we've helped solve problems in the past. And uh, sounds like you guys are doing that um, all across the board in your business. So congratulations. And uh, yeah, really lovely to uh, have, have spoken with you today. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you very much. The Insiders by Durham Lane. Subscribe today to never miss an episode.